0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. It's a big day for Denver's hometown airline, Frontier, and its pilots just agreed to a new contract. This comes after more than two years of negotiations. Frontier's pilots have been some of the lowest paid in the industry. We'll get into why that's the case and what this new deal might mean for passengers with Captain Alan Christie. He's a longtime pilot for the airline and a union representative. Hi, Captain. Hi, Ryan. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. This vote just coming in this morning. And what was the final tally?
1: Well, the the polling closed this morning at 8 a.m. local. And at 8.05, we received the results that 99.1% of the pilots participated in the vote, which is almost a record high for participation. And the vote was 77% in favor and 23% uh, against. 77% in favor of this deal with Frontier. And incredible turnout. Most everyone uh, voted in this. Uh, Is it a good deal? In my opinion, it's a very good deal for the pilots. It uh, moves us forward from where we've been over the last uh, decade, almost uh, trailing most of the other major airlines uh, solidly into the pattern of pay and benefits of the uh, other major carriers in the country.
0: You walked around DIA, perhaps looking at other pilots, thinking, "I wish I had their package,
1: benefits and pay." Um, these contracts are as uh, unique as fingerprints. They uh, oh. they evolve over many years with the different work rules of the of the uh, contract. Or, sorry, the different airlines. So. Uh, the package that we work for the Frontier uh, pilots work best to uh, help the airline and help the, the Frontier pilots move forward.
0: Why were Frontier's pilots some of the lowest paid in the industry?
1: Well, for people that have been uh, in Colorado for a number of years, they've probably watched the rise of Frontier back from 95, uh, 1995 uh, to become Denver's hometown airline to uh, only to uh, experience in 2008 uh, financial crisis uh, when Frontier uh, had to file for bankruptcy. And, uh, in order to keep the operation, uh, solvent, the pilots were, or I should say going, the, the pilots, amongst other pilot, uh, employee groups were asked to, uh, to give up some of their pay, uh, to reduce the cost to keep Frontier in a competitive uh, position. So pilots helped the airline stay afloat, to
0: mix my metaphors here.
1: Uh, absolutely, yes. And we had a very cooperative, uh, relationship with our management team back then, and, uh, uh, we worked to, uh, like I say, keep the airline uh, moving forward uh, to get through some pretty tough financial times. Okay. And so this is a reflection of the fact that things have improved for Frontier. What is the nature
0: of the deal? What is the nature of the, the pay increase here?
1: Well, just to give a little more background, the uh, we emerged out of bankruptcy when uh, Republic Airlines bought us uh, back in 2009, and uh, when fuel uh, started to get into the $140 a barrel range. It got very tough uh, for all the airlines in Frontier particularly. And uh, we almost faced going into bankruptcy again in 2011. And that's when the pilots voted to, uh, to give up more than $55 million in pay and benefits uh, uh, to keep the airline um, going, uh, literally keep the doors open. And uh, is follow- this a restoration of that? And, well, and perhaps a little growth from there? So the restoration of that uh, during that uh, interim five-year period, which that uh, that agreement covered, the airlines saw a fairly rapid uh, return to profitability, and uh, you saw uh, an era of uh, consolidation amongst the major carriers and things like that. And uh, meanwhile, Frontier was trying to uh, solidify its foundation with new owners under Indigo uh, private equity partners. And uh, they have since become quite profitable. And the pilots have uh, since been waiting to restore our pay and benefits from those levels back literally from uh, 2007. So we, we trailed the industry by at least 50% in most, most metrics. And so to that fundamental question, what's in this deal specifically? So this deal restores the pay to, uh, I shouldn't say restores, but increases the pay to industry standard levels. Okay, um, We will see a uh, uh, fairly substantial increase in our retirement program, um, improvements in job security, which is very important for pilots, and uh, um, improvement in some working rules that were that were given up uh, as part of the uh, bankruptcy agreement that we made. Does this mean better hours? Well, the number of hours that a pilot can work is largely regulated by the FAA. They have maximums, but uh, our con- contractual limits. Um, generally are a little more restrictive than that to allow for quality of life items. And it's largely based on the operation uh, scope of the airline. And Frontier is largely a domestic carrier, so we don't necessarily need to work with uh, dealing with international, uh, international work rules and things like that. But Yes, the restoration of work rules has occurred, and uh, we're quite proud of what we were able to achieve.
0: We've just gotten a statement from Frontier. You've been hearing the voice of one of its pilots and a union representative, but this is what the airline says. We are pleased to have reached this agreement with our pilots and believes it gives them best-in-class salary and benefits while also ensuring Frontier's continued growth. That's according to Barry Biffle, president and CEO of Frontier. It goes on that Frontier would like to thank the union leadership and recognize the dedicated work of the National Mediation Board in achieving this deal. Uh, what is the hiring landscape
1: these days for pilots? Is there a shortage? Well, there's, <clears throat> I'm sure people have heard an advertised shortage of pilots that's, uh, that's occurred, and you need to look at it in historical perspectives. Um, following uh, the Terrorist attacks of two thousand and one. Um, a lot of airlines entered into bankruptcy. I myself was furloughed twice from a major airline, and the uh, the employment the employment prospects were quite bleak, frankly. And uh, if one looks at the cost of entry into becoming a pilot, the, with the education and experience requirements, we're talking a hundred, two hundred, and two hundred fifty thousand dollars. That's the barrier to entry. And with the prospects of um, not too many jobs out there, the number of people wanting to become pilots uh, fell off precipitously. Oh. and uh, I
0: guess that was in your favor, perhaps, as you went into these negotiations, which w- were quite public, by the way. There were billboards about these frontier <laughs> negotiations. You had a mobile strike center. It was a sort of bus that meant uh, to draw public attention to this.
1: Yeah, it uh, I just want to uh, follow up on the on the uh, pilot shortage issue. Yeah. What what uh, our experience has been as a union lo- at large, the airline pilots' association, has been that there's not really a physical shortage of pilots. However, there is a shortage of pilots willing to work for substandard wages. And Frontier was was definitely running into some headwinds uh, with that, as there were uh, there's much better opportunities available uh, out there. And um, it's our opinion, and we've already seen that with the restoration of the wages to industry standard levels that uh, people are willing to uh, – we're getting qualified candidates wanting to come to Frontier again.
0: As I mentioned, it's taken more than two years to reach a deal. The negotiations have been described as difficult. An arbiter, arbitrator rather, at one point said the airline was negotiating in bad faith. Uh, the union even took the extraordinary step of initiating a possible strike. But let's look ahead to the future, perhaps, of this airline. There's some talk about it becoming uh, publicly traded once again. It's had lots of different ownership changes over the years. Uh, and, you know, Frontier has really recast itself as, as an ultra-low-cost
1: carrier where you pay for all of the, all of the frills. What do you see as, as the future for this airline? Well, I think with this agreement that uh, everybody can start pulling in the same direction. Now, uh, you're right; the negotiations were sometimes contentious, and uh, the uh, negotiations are are um, resided over by the or presided over by the National Mediation Board. So, the fact that we were able to uh, obtain this agreement without uh, having to undertake any kind of work action is uh, a testament to both sides' uh, tenacity. And I feel that now the frontier pilots have uh, absta- uh, obtained a certain amount of um, job stability and uh, wage equilibrium with the rest of the industry that uh, the airline has Positioned itself very well to move uh, to move forward with its plans for it, with its uh, rapid expansion that it has in mind. A rapid expansion. Thank you
0: for being with us, Captain. Absolutely. He is Captain Alan Christie, a Frontier pilot, part of the union negotiating team. Pilots just ratified their new deal with Colorado's hometown airline. There's something unexpected in the skies these days. First comes a big dark hulk, then maybe a little more definition, and then the glimmer of a shiny white head. Bald eagles are back in a big way after being on the edge of extinction— Colorado Matters producer Michelle Fulcher is our resident bird watcher. Hi, Michelle.
2: Hi, Ryan.
0: I understand that you have a real thing for eagles.
2: Yep, and I'm not the only one. Let me just share a little moment of joy from this weekend. I met up at Bar Lake, which is east of Denver, with a lady named Shannon Romero. She's a Colorado native. She's from Arvada. Let me set the scene here. We're on a viewing platform. We're looking out at the lake, which is partly frozen, and big, towering cottonwood trees. And I got to see my first bald eagle right when we were walking up, pulled out the binoculars, looked up, and saw it start flying away. And I swear, I started crying right away. It was so cool to see. Um, It's just so big, much bigger than I realized they are. And much more prevalent, Ryan. There are about 1,200 migrating eagles in Colorado right now and about 125 nesting pairs who are permanent residents here.
0: That live here full-time. So we're seeing the visitors and the long-term residents. How do you spot them?
2: So this is going to sound a little irritating, but it's sort of knowing what you're looking for. So when I was driving to Bar Lake, I'm on the highway, kind of out of my eye, I see a biggish lake, and some cottonwood trees, and I think, okay, this could be a spot. And sure enough, I looked up at tree level, and there's the big white head and that bulky black body.
0: Okay, so telltale signs there being perhaps the water, the trees?
2: Exactly. like Exactly. Okay. That's what you're looking for. And then kind of once you've spotted that kind of an area, somebody once told me, look for golf balls. That's the white head.
0: Okay. Uh, why are these birds so special to you, Michelle Fulcher?
2: So... It's the national bird, obviously, even in the federal government shutdown. <laughs> um, but when I look at them and I see them soaring just way up in the air, it's it's so graceful. It's such a huge bird, and it barely even moves its wings. That's really beautiful to me. And then there's the excitement of seeing it and thinking, okay, is this really an eagle? What am I looking at here? And then you see that glimmer or the, the shape comes into focus, And it's kind of exciting.
0: They have their uh, quirks as well. In fact, you have for us a recording of a bald eagle.
2: Now, is that something you would picture coming out of an animal with an eight foot wingspan? No,
0: it's a little, (laughs) it sounds frankly a little puny. I hate to say that. It's kind of wimpy, right? Uh (laughs) (laughs) But not only are their wings
2: uh, large, but so are their nests. Tell me about the nests. About the size of a queen size bed and really deep. So they literally, they will weigh like two tons, maybe.
0: My goodness. Uh, Now, you mentioned the eagles that have migrated to Colorado this winter. Um, What parts of this state are they in?
2: So mostly the northeast quadrant of the state kind of coming down the front range because there's a good water supply there and that's what they're after. They need fish, right?
0: Ah, okay. So that's, again, what to look out for. If you see a body of water, your chances of seeing an eagle are probably pretty decent. Uh, but you can see them outside of the Front Range. Do I have that right?
2: Absolutely. Around the state. Uh, Steamboat Springs, Grand Junction. They're least prevalent in the southeast corner of the state, but I saw one down there on a just a random farm one day.
0: Okay. I, if anyone was going to see one, it was going to be you. <laughs> And where are they coming from, Michelle?
2: They're coming from the north, and they leave in about February, so within a month or so, uh, because the nesting pairs start to mate and to lay their eggs, and they get very territorial. They want the other guys gone.
0: So the, the mating pairs will start nesting in another month or so.
2: Right. So, for instance, February 9th, Bar Lake is having uh, something for kids, and they call it Love is in the Air because of the Coincidence with valentine 's day coming up
0: it's kind of romantic though these it these seriously is, bonding yeah. pairs they they bond for life they made
2: for life, okay
0: when I was a kid i don't remember hearing about or certainly seeing bald eagles up close very often. Just give us a little of the history here what changed
2: so they came very close to extension to extinction in nineteen seventy eight when the state tracked the number of eagles, they found exactly two nesting pairs wow and They were virtually wiped out by DDT, which was a pesticide, and by encroachment by humans. And they've come back. I talked to Liza Rossi. She's a state wildlife officer. She works in Steamboat, and she sees eagles along the Yampa River all the time. It's just an amazing story to talk to the public about. And you do realize that if we can figure out what's going on with the species and with its habitat or with something like a pesticide like DDT, it just is an opportunity to to hope and to think that we can help animals recover and species recover.
0: Is there some danger, though, with these eagles that have rebounded, getting too close to people?
2: People is the problem, right? So there's development, there's growth, there's construction that will disrupt eagles' nests, for instance. There's a controversy going on about that in Broomfield right now. And then there are well-meaning people like me, right, who see an eagle and really want to get up close. And that's just dangerous for the eagles. Yeah, how
0: far should you stay back?
2: Believe it or not, about a half mile is what the state recommends okay. from a nesting eagle. Now,
0: This is a binocular bird.
2: Right. Is that, well, <laughs> yes and no. It's so big, you can see it in the trees pretty clearly. But binoculars and spotting scopes help.
0: Thanks, Michelle. We appreciate it.
2: Nice to talk to you, Ryan.
0: She's Michelle Fulcher, and we'll have tips for how and where to watch Eagles later today at CPR.org. Now we're going to meet the man who has coached generations of CU skiers. Richard Rokos has led the university ski team for almost three decades. CPR's Vic Vela recently sat down with Rokos and learned that his love for winter sports began during his
3: childhood in communist Central Europe. Richard, you grew up in the former Czechoslovakia. Yes. And in 1964, the Winter Olympics uh-huh. came
4: through Austria, which is nearby. Yeah, I was just behind the border. So we having Olympics, I don't know, 70 miles from our hometown was pretty exciting even though it was so far actually because it was behind the curtain.
3: That's the iron curtain that divided Europe following World War II. As he watched the Olympics that year, Rokos was especially taken with the underdog American ski team. They became the first American men to win Olympic medals for alpine skiing.
4: In our country we have great affinity for United States after Second World War. In fact, we were liberated mostly by Americans. So watching Olympics, Americans were more on my radar screen than uh, anyone else. I knew Austrians, you know, the tradition, friends, Italian teams. And here comes uh, this group of cowboys, (laughs) you know, (laughs) young guys uh, from the United States with uh, fairly uh, limited experience in European racing.
3: Rokos skied competitively for his country as a teenager and became a teacher and coach at a Czech university. But as he advanced professionally, he started to get in trouble politically. The Communist Party pressured Rokos to become a
4: member, but he didn't want to. So we were going back and forth. In the end of it, I didn't have choice. I had to leave the country because they gave me ultimatum. You know, you will join the party or you are out of here. So if uh, i cannot do what i'd like to do and i really like coaching and teaching you know because it was all my life my education so we decided well let's let's move out
3: but fleeing communist europe in 1980 was no easy task rokos had a wife and a young child and to keep them from defecting they were never given permits to leave the country together but they worked around the system to obtain separate permissions to visit austria
4: in the end of it, we were lucky to jump in one car and drive and see what will happen at the border. And uh, chances were that uh, we'll go back uh, and straight to jail. And it didn't happen, you know. We were lucky enough to come to the border. They checked my papers. Okay, I have a permit to travel to sport event in Austria. And my wife, she had a uh, permit to travel to visit relatives. There was before worldwide that, so it helped a lot, you know, no, no database on us.
3: After living in Austria for a bit, Rokos was granted asylum in the U.S. He worked for the U.S. Pro Ski Tour before settling down in Boulder. In 1987, he was hired as an assistant coach for the CU ski team. Four years later, he became head coach. And in a twist of fate, the athletic director who hired Rokos, Bill Marolt, had himself been part of that 1964 Olympic ski team that first inspired his interest in American skiing. And Rokos became good friends with another member of that Olympic team, CU's Jimmy Huga.
4: When I was 14, 1964, I did not have any idea that I'll end up one day being uh, very close associates with the same boys, because obviously after Olympics, they were gone. They, they finished their career. I didn't follow up on them until I escaped. And then I met them again, you know, some 30 years later.
3: Correct me if I'm wrong. You've won eight? Yes. Eight national championships through the NCAA. You're the longest tenured head coach in ski team history. You're one... I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> You're one of the winningest coaches in any sport mm-hmm. on campus. You're an institution at CU. What do you attribute to your success?
4: Perseverance, I guess. That's something what I came with. And uh, I always had uh, all my life. And I think that what drives my life uh, since the very beginning, you know, um, it is, it's it's working with young people. It, it's my passion. You know, it's uh, it's something... What you look ahead and you say I can improve his her life and and make sure that they can succeed in sport or uh, life?
0: That is CU ski coach Richard Richard Roco speaking with CPR's Vic Vella. When we come back, exploring the borderlands of Colorado. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. They said, "Go, go see
3: Doctor Dahl.
5: I'm Carla Walker from Colorado Public Radio Classical, and that's conductor and lecturer Scott O'Neill, my co-host in the CPR Performance Studio, for a new podcast exploring the life and work of one of the great composers, Sergei Rachmaninoff. Rachmaninoff may be the best example, maybe the only example, of a composer who overcame severe writer's block with the help of hypnosis.
3: He'd walk down the street to Nikolai Dahl's house, lie back in a deep, comfortable armchair, and Dahl would speak to him in his soft, hypnotic voice. You will begin to write
0: your concerto. You will work with great facility. The concerto
2: will be of an excellent quality.
5: Hypnosis worked. Rachmaninoff was able to write his second piano concerto, the middle movement of which is absolutely stunning.
0: It starts in this still, dark C minor. But very quickly, it turns to a warm, comforting E major.
5: For CPR's great composers wherever you get your podcasts, and thanks to CPR's supporting members who make digital content like this possible. Learn more at cpr.org.
0: It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Poet Javier Zamora came to the US from El Salvador when he was nine as a refugee. But his future here became uncertain in 2017 when the federal government considered revoking his temporary protected status. He was one of 300,000 immigrants left wondering. So Zamora, hoping for more certainty, flew to El Salvador, where he hadn't been in two decades, in hopes of getting a visa.
6: I was thinking about this from San Francisco to Houston. In Houston, I think it really began to kick in. By then I was like, OK, am I going to come back? Am I going to return to this? How am I going to return from this? I was thinking about seeing my grandparents for the first time in 19 years. After I got here, my grandparents and I mostly communicated over the phone. It's like, how are you doing? How it's El Salvador? How is the United States? How's work? How's the weather? Okay, I love you, bye. I feel like they hide a lot of things from us and also we hide a lot of things from them.
0: Welcome to El
5: Salvador. kind of We'll be for the
6: next two minutes. When I land and I go through the checkpoint and I get a whiff of the humidity and I get to the road, my grandpa's waiting there.
0: That audio diary comes from NPR's Latino USA, which you'll be able to hear on CPR News starting next week. Maria Inojosa hosts the show.
7: In one story where we follow his return, we begin to understand so much about these nameless and faceless children who are coming here for refuge. That's what Latino USA does. It gives you context. It gives you an understanding. Latino USA started in
0: 1993 to improve NPR's coverage of Latino communities. It's gone on to become one of the longest running national news programs about Latinos and Latinas. Inajosa says it's made those communities more visible.
7: The thing about getting a lot of attention as a community is that it can be a great thing. It can also be really problematic, especially if narratives are being portrayed about this particular community that are not necessarily true or correct. I think what's happened now is that there are people who have ideas in their heads about who Latinos and Latinas are. And and maybe for some of those people, they have an opinion and they're just not interested in learning anymore. They've kind of decided that this is, a, I don't know, a problematic part of our country. But while that's happening in a small segment of our country the rest of the country is saying, wait, what's happening? What's going on? Who? What? This is interesting. I mean, what was the biggest movie uh, in recent times was Coco, which happens to be a movie about a Mexican tradition called The Day of the Dead, which we've been reporting about for 25 years. You know, what's one of the biggest movies right now that everybody's talking about? Uh, it's called Roma. It's about a Mexico City neighborhood. What's happening is that A moment of perhaps unwanted targeting of a community has actually led, in our case, to do even better reporting about this community, even more kind of in-depth, peeling the layers of the onion back. And one story that has haunted
0: Hinojosa for years happened right here in Colorado. It was 2013 and
7: floods hit the northern part of the state. We had a journalist from Colorado who told us a particular moment that happened when a family that was undocumented was, they were trying to evacuate the entire town. And it was four o'clock in the morning. The mom was in her overnight shift working, and the dad and the children were in their home. Dad and the kids were asleep when the floods were coming. And neighbors came and started banging on the door like that, you know. Like, really banging on the door. And the father wouldn't answer, even though the floods were coming, because he was afraid that that was immigration that was coming to get him. In the end, it was his neighbors that yelled at him and said, No, it's not immigration. We're your neighbors. We have to evacuate the town. And dad was able to get his daughters out of the house and to safety. But to me, the story was this is what fear looks like. You're so afraid to open the door to anyone, even to someone who's trying to save your life.
0: Maria Inajosa says Latino USA strives to go beyond the more obvious stories and reveal aspects of Latino culture that are less well-known.
7: You know, I think when Latino USA started (laughs) 25 years ago, there was a... It was very easy to do stories like, oh, my God, the first Latino astronaut. Oh, my God, the first Latino neurosurgeon. The fact is, is that 25 years in, the complexity uh, and of the experience of Latinos and Latinas has only grown. And so in a lot of ways, if Latino USA started 25 years ago, it was like we were reporting on the tip of the iceberg of the Latino Community, And over the past 25 years, what we've realized is that there's so much complexity to the Latino community. So, for example, some of the, my favorite episodes have also been like the hidden history of Latinos in rock and roll or Latinos and Latinas in hip hop. I think the major guitar player of David Bowie was a Puerto Rican.
8: Out comes this 98 pounds, orange
0: hair guy. And I'm talking about white, white, translucent white, and orange,
8: (laughs) that ziggy kind. And you know me, I'm a regular New Yorker. I say, man, you sure are thin, man. You need to eat some food. Why don't you go to my house? And so surprisingly enough, my wife and I, we were living in Queens, and suddenly this limousine pops up, and it's David Bowie.
7: Oh, my God. This is the kind of stuff that you'll learn on Latino USA.
0: Maria Hinojosa hosts Latino USA, which comes to CPR News next week, Monday nights at 9, Sunday evenings at 5. The government shutdown has renewed debate about a border wall and border security. You may not realize the original border with Mexico was actually in what's now Colorado. Let's go back to 1848, the end of the Mexican American War. Mexico gave up a huge part of what became the southwestern United States. The Latina poet Juliana Aragon Fatula of Canyon City puts it this way
2: You know, we didn't cross the border, the border crossed us.
0: When the border moved, families in the area were split apart. They lost their land and more. It's the subject of an exhibit called Borderlands of Southern Colorado at the El Pueblo History Museum in Pueblo. I spoke with curator Don DePrince in May. Welcome to the program, Don. Thank
9: you, Brian.
0: The border crossed us. A lot of people in Southern Colorado say that. Uh, What did it mean practically and culturally when that happened?
9: Well, it was um, an example of displacement in place. And so usually when you think of people as being displaced, it means that they move to another space. But this was people living in the same lands, their homelands, but being treated um, in some ways as foreigners in the lands where their ancestors were from.
0: Being treated as foreigners, what did that mean in their lives?
9: Um, in in some ways, it meant um, new laws, um, uh, new uh, ways of property ownership, new language, um, new religion. Um, All of those things. Right.
0: One day you wake up and you're under the rule of another nation.
9: Absolutely. Oh, my
0: goodness. To Tell us about some of the political goings on uh, that led to this. So there's an important treaty at the end of the war that leads to the border crossing.
9: Yes. So, um, for many people, they don't understand that the Arkansas River that flows through Pueblo was once the international border between U.S. and Mexico. And, um, the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo changed all of that. It moved the border to where it practically is today. And so, um, When you live south of the river in Pueblo at this time, that would have been Mexico. And so it's very uh, important to remember the way in which this international document transformed um, the lives of Puebloans and southern Coloradoans.
0: Fascinating. And this treaty, which the El Pueblo Museum has on loan from the National Archives, uh, set the southern border then of the United States to its current location along the Rio Grande, right? Yes,
9: absolutely.
0: Yeah. What do you feel when you see that treaty?
9: It's very powerful to see a document that impacted the lives of so many Um But it's interesting when you talk to people from our community. We just had a gentleman yesterday who explained to him how excited he was that this document was here. But it was also simultaneously painful because of the impact it had on um, his ancestors.
0: Yeah, Because part of this was collecting oral histories. I want to play a clip from George Auduby of Avondale, just east of Pueblo in Pueblo County, um, who says his ancestor had thousands of acres to farm in the area. But after the treaty was signed, the U.S. government didn't recognize his right to the land.
8: It destroyed literally our family in regards to financial because our family lost everything, couldn't keep the land. He died in poverty. He died on the land because they let him stay there. But uh, he had nothing. The rest of our family ended up being scattered, working as farm laborers, a lot of them.
0: How does this past affect his family today? How does this reverberate?
9: That's what's really interesting about this concept of displacement in place. You know, people who were once landowners are now working the same land. And as you can imagine, the impact that that would have on one's personal wealth and familial wealth over generations. So if you are working the land, you obviously are um, getting something different from that same land As you would as a landowner. And so what you find is, um, and you can see this statistically, you find that there are generational disenfranchisement of these same families who've been in this same landscape for seven, eight, nine plus generations.
0: Such an amazing and immediate change of fortune. Uh, I have people in the Pueblo area rolling their eyes, I suspect, at the pronunciation of that town. It's Avondale. Avondale, absolutely. I, I want to apologize. Of course, there's Avon elsewhere in this <laughs> state. Uh, forgive my ignorance. Uh, another man in the Pueblo area wrote to his wife after the treaty was signed. Uh, this was in Spanish, and, and here's the translation. I believe that this is the last letter that I will write you. I will tell you why, because we are in great danger of the Texans and the Indians. We are more certain of dying than of living. I feel very deeply to leave my children so young, but God will see to them. The letter goes on. Tell us just a bit about it.
9: Well, um, I want to first explain how this letter came into our possession. Um, A woman from Pueblo, Vera Estrada, came to one of our memory workshops, and this is a letter from her ancestor to his wife. Um, He wrote it from Rio Napesta, which is the indigenous mestizo way of um, calling the Arkansas River. And he basically writes his wife to say, I may not make it. Please let my children know who their father is. Please ensure that these people receive my goats. There's an amazing part of the letter where he encourages his wife to go look in this special place in the kitchen, in a kettle, a copper kettle, and we wonder what maybe she would have found there. Um, What I think is really significant about this letter in relationship to the treaty the treaty signed in February of 1848, mm-hmm. and this letter is written in August of 1848. So it, That's
0: how quickly his life got that bleak.
9: Yep, yep. I mean, that's our understanding that his life is an upheaval. There's uncertainty because of the impact of the treaty.
0: You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking to Don Prince from History Colorado about this exhibit called Borderlands of Southern Colorado. And it is about how the border crossed those who were living in southern Colorado when what was Mexico became the United States. And uh, I- indeed, you refer to this as borderlands. How is that different from a border, do you think?
9: Um, borders, borders are very um, – they're more like barriers. They're dividers. And borderlands is different than that, um, What you find in Borderlands is the ways in which cultures adapt to live within that um, space that somebody may have divided. You find cultures that mix and overlap. Um, There's an interesting hybridity. There's also multiplicity. And by that, I mean people learn to live in multiple worlds at the same time. Hmm. Um, That can
0: be a function of language. That can be a function of culture. It might be faith.
9: Yes, yes. Faith and practice. And um, what we find is it's a, it's a form of resilience and resourcefulness that almost forms its own unique culture.
0: Do you still see that today in Southern
3: Colorado?
9: Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's one of the best parts about living in Southern Colorado is that people have retained their culture in ways that I think are unique uh, to the rest of the state.
0: How do you see that? Give me an example.
9: When I think about weddings, weddings okay. in Pueblo are a very big uh, cultural tradition.
0: And so you see in them uh, aspects of, of the crossroads of cultures.
9: Absolutely. You know, at a, at a kitchen table, you may find tamales and Italian goat cheese and um, Slovenian kibase, and that would not be um, abnormal.
0: Huh. Uh, we've been talking about the border between the U.S. and Mexico Uh, But were people also affected when the Colorado state borders were drawn?
9: You know, oftentimes when you live in Southern Colorado, people believe that there is already there's a imaginary border uh, between Northern Colorado and Southern Colorado, Hmm. and it's interesting that that's actually historically based. Uh, Where we live in Colorado was considered the New Mexican notch. And people argued very hard that that part of Colorado should remain part of New Mexico because of the familial ties that crossed um, those communities. And right before the Civil War, though, they decided they needed to hurry up and make Colorado a state um, so it could support the union. And they just followed those latitude and longitude lines and, and created the state that we have today.
0: And not a notch. Do you think think that there are people in southern Colorado who sort of spiritually feel a part of New Mexico?
9: Oh, absolutely. And a lot of that's based on family and tradition. Many people who live in southern Colorado, their roots are northern New Mexico or the San Luis Valley. And so they're just very tied to that space ancestrally.
0: How do you think this history Uh, fits into the traditional story of the American West?
9: Well, I think one of the things our exhibit does that um, I think challenges the normal narrative of the American West is it reminds us of the people who were already here. Oftentimes when you hear about manifest destiny and westward expansion, you get this sense that this land was empty. And in fact, we have had families living in the space for many, many generations. One of my very favorite parts of the story are the the women of the borderlands. There were many women of color in the borderlands, who were leaders and um, ambassadors.
0: Give us an example.
9: Well, one of my uh, very favorite characters from all of history is uh, Machi Ochini-Prowers from um, the Bent County Los Animas area.
0: Machi, I I think of that as associated with the Japanese-American internment
9: camp. Yes, the internment camp was named for her. But she was a Cheyenne woman. Her father was killed at the Sand Creek Massacre, and she was... um, given land and reparations from the state um, because of the death of her father. She married John Prowers, who was an Anglo man.
0: And there's Prowers County.
9: And Prowers County, absolutely. And we have this beautiful photo mural of her in the exhibit um, where she's wearing a velvet dress. And so oftentimes people see her in that that way. But archaeologists discovered that she, in fact, protected her Cheyenne ways and cooked with stone tools and, and still followed beading practices. And we have those stone tools in our exhibit.
0: Well, thank you for sharing these stories with us and how it reverberates today in Southern Colorado. Thank you. History Colorado's Don De Prince helped curate Borderlands of Southern Colorado at Pueblo's El Pueblo History Museum. We spoke in May. Tonight, legendary violinist Itzhak Perlman is in Denver with the Colorado Symphony Orchestra. CPR Classical's Monica Vischer spoke with Perlman about a special anniversary, the role of music today, and a Grammy nomination that has surprised him, even though he's already won fifteen.
5: Mr. Perlman, thank you so much for joining
8: us today. My pleasure. Nice to be here.
5: So the re-release of Schindler's List comes during highly contentious times. You recently played with the Pittsburgh Symphony to honor the victims of the deadliest attack on Jews in U.S. history. Uh, That was at Pittsburgh's Tree of Life Synagogue, 11 killed, 7 injured. That performance, remembering the victims, what was that night like?
8: Of course, the concert was an extremely emotional uh, experience. And when they said... uh, Kaddish for the dead. In the in the concert, the entire people there in the hall were saying the prayer for the dead. So it was quite quite moving. Mm. The most important thing is to make sure that we all remember what's going on, and that when we talk about uh, anti-Semitism, especially young kids uh, when they study at school. They should not think that, you know, the Holocaust was something of a historical nature and that antisemitism, which was all about the Holocaust, was something that you study in history books because, unfortunately, we still are confronted by that today. And it's very, very important that people know what's going on and remember and be careful and just know that this is not something that can just be ignored, that it has to be addressed.
5: In these times of violence, of racial tension and hostilities, the 25th anniversary of Schindler's List seems particularly poignant and perhaps more relevant today than when it first came out in 1994. What is your view on this?
8: It's similar to what we talked about when it came to playing in Pittsburgh, is that it brings back to the front burner the history and the tragic history that that occurred this particular film is itself a work of art and it speaks in many ways It speaks in the middle of horrors against humanity maybe a little bit of a ray of sunshine you know with mr schindler who gave his own contribution to help Jews get out of this Holocaust and so on. So in, in a sense, this is a, a, a ray of sunshine and, and somehow reminds us of maybe of a little hope that among humanity, there's always people who are, who are good people and who look at tragedy and try and do something to, to alleviate from total hopelessness. It's a great film, and um, I feel personally lucky that I was able to participate in a small part, at least from the musical point of view, in this wonderful film.
5: But you played such a leading role musically.
8: Well, yes, I got you know I got a call from uh, John Williams who wrote the score, and he was telling me that it was basically what he heard in his head was the sound of a violin. Luckily he said to me, uh, well, I heard your sound in violin, so, so would you do it? And uh, I thought about it for very little. I said, of course, that I would love to do it. It never occurred to me that it was going to be so moving that he was going to capture, John Williams, that is, capture the mood of the film. And then when he sent me the music and I, I heard it, and I said, wow. This is really something, and of course, I heard it with full orchestra when we actually recorded the soundtrack in Boston with the Boston Symphony. Steven Spielberg was in the hall listening to what was going on, which was quite wonderful, you know, to have the, the director and, and the person that does the film actually pay attention to what goes on um, musically. And actually, at that time, it was the first time that I actually saw the, the film is when we had to record the, the score.
5: Hmm. Mr. Perlman, as we look at the place of classical music today what juncture are we at uh, its role in addressing today's times and the difficulties that we're contending with what, what is the role that classical music and the arts really needs to take on today?
8: Well, I think that for me I mean, all I can say is that music is, represents the soul of society. Whenever things are tough, I think that one of the great escapes is music. What it does to our soul, what it does to our emotional feelings and so on, is, for me, you can't say enough about it because hopelessness is very, very dangerous. And unfortunately, today, things are just not not in great shape spiritually and uh, I think that we should rely on music. I certainly do and you know I feel that when you see such ugliness that's going on you have to turn to beauty and beauty is what I do and I'm very lucky that I'm in the business of making beautiful music and making emotional music. That's the great escape for me.
5: On a lighter note, your new biographical film, Itzhak, is up for a Grammy for Best... Music film? Did you ever imagine you'd be competing with the likes of Whitney Houston, Eric Clapton, Elvis Presley, Quincy Jones in a category like this?
8: I'm, I'm, I must tell you this: it's quite amazing to me. You know, I, I did not expect it. It did not come from me. I was not the one. I was sort of pushed to do it, and then I said, "Oh, what the hell? Let's let's just do it." But it, <laughs> but it's always a crapshoot. It's always a crapshoot when you do something like that because you never know. You know, you can have the best people and so on and somehow it just doesn't turn out but I mean this has been just amazing to me you know the, the reaction that it got is quite fantastic and so it's an honor to be included with Quincy Jones and, and Whitney Houston and Elvis and so on it's 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 amazing so I mean just to be there is great so whatever happens happens but uh, I'm very excited and, uh, and hopefully uh, it'll do well
5: So I just have to ask you, I read your story about how radio played an important role in turning you on to classical music. Can you tell us that story?
8: Well, uh, Well, that was basically when I was growing up in Israel and I was, you know, when I was two and three years old. And the only entertainment that we had was the radio. You know, there was no TV or anything like that. And I would listen to music on the radio. And a lot of it was at that time was classical and so I listened to some fiddle playing and uh, and I told my parents that I wanted to play the violin, you know, so they got me a toy violin and it did not exactly sound like what I heard on the radio. <laughs> so I immediately so so a year later they gave me something that was a little bit more appropriate and from then on you know I I was able to do what I could do as as a young kid, you know. But it was but it was all uh by listening to what was going on on the radio that that inspired me to want to play.
0: CPR Classical Program Director Monica Vischer speaking with the legendary violinist Itzhak Perlman. He performs with the Colorado Symphony tonight. Thanks for spending time with us. I'm Ryan Warner, and this is Colorado Matters from CPR News.